theyeshiva.net. So today's class is dedicated by our dear friends, Dr. Michael and Liz Michelle, from the pillars of our shiurim, our classes, in tribute to the 10th yard site of Dr. Michelle's mother. Ten years, yeah, on the 23rd day of Cheshvan, in the loving memory of Rebetzin Sarah Michelle, Sarah Bas, Rabbi Chiel Mechel, who passed away ten years ago on Chav Gimel Cheshvan. So the Yard will be commemorated this Friday. She was a pillar of the Muncie community, an educator, a mentor, a pillar of kindness and benevolence and generosity. He also built an amazing, beautiful family. And may she remain and her loving memory remain an eternal source of blessing and inspiration to her family, all of her loved ones and all of the Jewish people. And thank you for your friendship and partnership. Sometimes the Torah spells its messages out very clearly. Sometimes it spells its messages out, but not so clearly. You have to dig a little deeper. You have to excavate. You have to uncover the layers of depth. depth. Sometimes the Torah gives us no more than clues And here it's almost like a puzzle where you have to, it's like investigative work really, where you have to start looking at all the clues, putting the pieces together and unraveling the story, the narrative that's being told. Many people, when they learn medrash, they learn medrashim on chumash, they learn the various agadahs, the various teachings of our sages, the rabbis, over the generations and explaining Chumash and explaining Tanakh, whether Medrash Rabbah, Medrash Tanchuma, Mechilta, Yalkut Shemaini, Sifra, Sifri, the various Medrash, or they learn Rashi, or they learn other commentators of Chumash that quote Gemaras, that quote Medrashim, written in earlier generations, later generations, often misunderstand a lot of the themes of the Medrash. It looks like the sages are just introducing all these types, of, all these new stories into the text that don't exist in the text. We'll soon see a very dramatic example of that. But really, what all of Medrash is doing is reading the text very, very clearly, very, very deeply, and most importantly, tuning into the nuances, as I said, to all of the clues that sometimes create a mosaic, a tapestry, where you literally see a puzzle unfolding. We once did a whole class, just as an illustration, uh, about the famous medrash that when uh, Batya, the daughter of Pare, comes to uh, bathe at the Nile Delta in the beginning of Shmois, and she sees a little basket, and she's curious and inquisitive. She sends either her arm or her maidservant, there's two interpretations, to fetch it. And of course she opens it up and there's a little baby and she decides to adopt the baby who, who she names Moshe. We all know the story. And yet when you look at Rashi, quoting a Gemara in Saita and a Medrash, he says that her arm extended Amos Harbe. Her arm, she couldn't fetch the, the basket. It was in the river. She couldn't get to it. But her arm extended... 10, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet, and she managed to grab the basket. Right now, if you came to a river, forgive me, 
and you saw a little basket, and you stretched out your arm, and your arm suddenly became 50 feet long, what would you do, honestly? <laughs> yeah, you would run very fast, right? Call Hatzala, call Chaveirim, call Shemrim, call 911. <laughs> call your husband to save you. We all grew up with these stories, but what was bothering them with the story as is? Torah doesn't say her arm extended 50 feet. So we gave a whole shit on this, that they were actually reading the story well. They were reading the story well. They were, they, were, they were conveying the idea that what she did was something that was beyond reach, was something that the arm usually cannot achieve. You know, there are certain things, even if I extend myself, I can achieve. And there are certain things you can extend yourself. And Heind Bismarck, there's an expression in Yiddish, Messias Nefesh helft afar upspringen von adach, nicht upspringen afadach. Self-sacrifice can help somebody jump off a roof if, if it's appropriate. But it, it's not going to help somebody jump onto a roof. I could be as dedicated as I want. Certain things are simply beyond reach. That was one of those stories. <laughs> to take a little Jewish baby and raise him under the eyes of Hitler or Stalin or Paray as his name was then. But it happens. So today we want to read such a story. It's filled with clues. There's clues. And you see that there are clues because there's no obvious reason to mention all of these details. But you don't understand the significance of these clues. And the Chazal came and read it, read these clues, and they showed the deeper plot, what you would call, there's the plot, and there's the subplot, and there's the sub-subplot. And uh, the credit of today's class is to Rabbi, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, whose first yard site is this week. He passed away last year in Britain. He was the former chief rabbi of Great Britain and died at the age of 72 last year, Shabbos Vayera. So this week is his first yard site. Thank you. With a cup, wow. You know, and his contribution was, was enormous and eloquent and rich. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Gilbert. Thank you. Oh, there's coffee and tea, wow. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. That's, that's amazing. Thank you, Junior. <laughs> so I don't want the work to go in vain. So make sure at some point you take a coffee or a tea. If you don't want it, bring it to your husband. Try to it. It shouldn't get too cold. And in what, so in one of the really beautiful, eloquent, remarkable essays of Rabbi Sachs on the Parsha, which he used to transcribe and email and send out and publish, on this Parsha, Chayesara, he showed how the Chazal... Uh, did this with one of the stories, and that's the basis of it's the basis of today's shir with so, some changes, some additions, but the basis is from Rabbi Sachs of blessed memory. We're going to explore three clues in Parshas Chayesara, three different clues. Now, when you read them, it's very easy to gloss over them because they're just small details. They don't seem to capture major events or something very dramatic or significant. But like everything in Torah, they do. And sometimes they tell a whole story that it would be so easy to miss. Now I want to make another comment, and that is, very often when we read Chumash, we right away learn it with the Mepharshim. You know, you learn in Chumash, you right away look in Rashi, you right away look in the Ramban, you right away look in the Arachayim, or the Klayokar, or the Sifarno, or the Chizkuni, or the Rashbam, or the Evanezra, and the many other commentators there are in Chumash. So we often don't get insight into how they came to the interpretation. Because you're already given 
the interpretation before you began to think yourself how you would interpret it. So it's sometimes very important to go backwards and say, you know, let me just look at the text without anything. How would I read this text? What are the pro- challenges with this text? What are the dilemmas in this text? What triggers a person's mind or heart in this text? And when one does that, we gain a whole new depth and richness to see how Rashi and the other commentators, based already on the Chazal, the sages in the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Midrashim, interpreted these psukim. The first clue comes at the end of a very long narrative. It's actually the longest story in the whole Torah, 67 psukim. For a story in Chumash to be longer than a few verses is already very, very novel. Even Matan Torah, right? The essence of all of Judaism, foundation of all of Judaism. Hashem coming down on Mount Sinai and communicating the Ten Commandments. It's just a few psuk, just a few verses. How long did Matan Torah take? Anybody knows? <laughs> How long did Har Sinai, Maimon Har Sinai take? Well, from, huh? <laughs> from the experience of Chumash, it looks like it was just a three-minute event. Maybe a four-minute event. It lasts for history. But that speech of the Aseris Hadibris is very, very short. Halavai, many rabbis would emulate God in giving such sermons. Yeah, look who's talking. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's a two-minute address that could change history. And sometimes a four-hour address, you know, doesn't say much, doesn't give much. When you have a, a story that endures that last 67 psukim, Chazal said about it, The conversation of the servants of the patriarchs is superior, more beautiful than the Torah of the children because so many halachas are only intimated to in a pasuk, an extra letter, an extra word, maybe a superfluous sentence. And here, the story of Avram Avinu dispatching his servant to go find a match, a soulmate for Yitzchak, occupies close to 70 psukim, and many of the details are repeated as the story happens, and then the servant repeats the story again to Rivka's family. But at last, the mission has been crowned with success. Avram Avinu's servant, it's interesting, the Torah doesn't mention the name of the servant he sent. He sent to find the Shidduch. It was the sages who sought as Eliezer, but the Torah would not say once who this person was. He identifies himself not by name, but when he comes to Rivka's family, he identifies himself as Eved Avraham Anoichi, I am the servant of Avram. He doesn't even give a first name or a last name. That's who he is. And he manages to convince them, well, it's after Rivka says that's what she wants, to bring Rivka back from Kharon, from Mesopotamia, northern Iraq, southern Turkey, back to the land of Canaan, where, of course, Avram Avinu lives and his son Yitzchak lives. And... The way the Torah just captures the story is Eliezer returns. Remember, he came with ten camels. He returns with ten camels. He returns with his people, everybody who came with him. And he returns with this priceless gem, young Rivka, who he feels would be an incredible wife for his master's son, for Yitzchak. And as they're returning, it's dusk, it's late afternoon, it's Lefnois Erev. And the Torah says, and I quote, you see it's in bold, the second source, Parshas Chayasara, Perik Chavdalad, Samach Beis, Genesis chapter 24, verse 62. It's close to the end of the story. Some 
somewhat of an enigmatic verse. Yitzchak was coming from coming. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? He was coming from coming. How do you come from coming? I understand that you say a person comes from this and this place. You have in the beginning of the parish of Ayavai Avraham Lispoid Avraham came. The question is from where he came. The Chazal argue about that. Where did he come from? Here it says, Vayitzchak Ba, he was coming. You could say he was coming from a well called Lachairoi, but it says he was coming from coming. Vayitzchak Ba mi boy. He was coming from the well, but he was coming from coming from the well, which of course is a clue. He frequented this well. So he was coming not just from the well that he happened to visit, but he was coming from coming from the well, meaning just earlier he came back from the well. Because he was there earlier, then he came home, then he went back. Or perhaps it means he was coming from coming to the well. But it's a very interesting uh, diok. When you, when you look at it, why does the Torah put it that way? And it was a well. And this well is called Lachai Rai. That's the name of the well. And that's where he's coming from. And the Torah wants us to know that he's coming from this well. At this time, he's living in the land of the Negev in the south of he goes out to take a stroll in the field before evening at dusk. Lasuach is understood as having a conversation. He goes to meditate. He goes to pray. He lifts up his eyes and he sees camels approaching. And of course, Rivka asks the servant of Avram Avinu, who is this man? And he introduces him as Yitzchak. This is when Rivka goes down from the camel. She does a badekinah. She covers herself. And she's introduced to Yitzchak. And the story concludes. Yitzchak brings her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. He betrothes her. She becomes his wife. He loves her. And Yitzchak is comforted for his mother. Why does the Torah have to mention that Yitzchak was coming back from a well? People with frequent wells remember we have sinks in our homes. We have access to water immediately. Thank God. But you had to go to the well. If you ever visited third world countries or little shtetlach, I remember a few years ago I went to the Ukraine, and you go to little shtetlach and people were literally coming to the well, the city well, to be able to fetch water. Water to drink, water to bathe, water to give to their animals, water for washing, water for laundry. And that's why... Of course, Eliezer went to the well outside of Charon where he met Rivka because people went in the evening to the wells in order to fill their buckets or barrels with water, their pitchers with water, and bring them home. It was not an easy work. So Yitzchak also went to a well, I understand. But is it important to say that when he met Rivka, he was coming back from that well? It it says he went out to stroll in the field. But right before that, we have to know that he was coming from a well. But he wasn't just coming from the well. By the way, he happened to be at that well. Bummy boy, he was coming from coming to the well. Okay, let's put this on hold for a moment. The Torah doesn't say the significance of this well. We just know Yitzchak meets Rivka, they get married. The story continues. And later, Avram Avinu would pass away. Avram Avinu, the next story right after this, what's the next story right after this? This ends Samach Zayin, chapter 24 of Bereshis. How does chapter 25 begin? So you see it, it's your fourth source, Chayesara Chafhei Aleph, Genesis 25.1, Vayosef Avram Vayikach Isha Ushmak Tura. 
Avram Avinu now added, he, by Yosef means he increased, he added, he progressed, and he marries a woman, and her name is Keturah. Of course, we have to remember the context. In the beginning of Chayi Sarah, Sarah passed away. She was 127 years old. Avram Avinu negotiates with the Bnei Ches to buy a burial plot. He buries Sarah. That's the first story. The second story is Avram grows old, and he realizes that Yitzchak is not married yet. Yitzchak is 40 years old, and that's when he sends his servant to find a mate for Yitzchak. And the servant comes back with Rivka, and that's when they meet Yitzchak, who was coming back from the well. Now Yitzchak is married with Rivka, he loves her, he's comforted after his mother. And the next chapter, Chafei, is Avraham remarries. And who does he marry? He marries a woman named Keturah, and as the Torah continues, he has six children with Keturah. Here too, we wonder about this story. Here is clue number two. After clue number one, which is Yitzchak was visiting a well, and he was coming from that well, what did he have at that well? Why is it mentioned here? Clue number two is, after Yitzchak gets married, suddenly Avraham, who's an older man now, because Sarah passed away at 127, Sarah was 90 when Yitzchak was born, Avraham Avinu was 100 when Yitzchak was born, we learned that in the previous parsha. Yitzchak was 40 when he married Rivka. This means Avraham is now 140 years old at this story. This is clearly stated in the Torah. Yitzchak was 40 when he married Rivka. That says later in Teldus. Avram Avinu was 100 when he, when he fathered Yitzchak. So now automatically he's 140. At 140 he decides to marry another woman, Keturah. Wow. What's the background? What motivated him to do this? It's actually a little difficult to understand. Maybe very difficult to understand. Because... For chapter after chapter, from the end of Noyach, the entire Lech Lecha, Vayere, we read of the love, loyalty, faithfulness, and dedication that Avram and Sarah had one for another. Remember that together they embarked on a long journey to an unknown destination. When Hashem tells Avram and Sarah, Lech Lecha, Mayartzechem, Ladlechem, Beisavichel, Sarah is infertile, it says, Akara Elav Lach, she can't have children. So Avram and Sarah really have each other. They don't have children at that point. They wouldn't have for most of their life. And yet Hashem says, embark on a very lonely journey away from your country, away from your birthplace, away from your father's home. And they do this, and they do this as partners. They do this as a team. Torah says clearly that they took as Hanefesh Asher Asu Becharon. They took with them the souls that they made in Charon and Chazal say, Avram Megayeres HaAnashim, Sarah Megayeres HaAnashim. Avram changed thousands of lives of men. Sarah changed and inspired thousands of lives of women. Meiri writes that they had an impact on half of human civilization then and in subsequent years. And together, together they become what you would call this power team that would revolutionize humanity, that would introduce morality, ethics, what later would become Yiddishkeit, godliness, Hashem's presence, and the unity of mankind, and the fact that we're responsible to each other and to a God, the fact that there is a oneness in creation, it's not random, there is a singular purpose to creation, creation is unified, creation is leading to a goal, to a purpose. The human life here on earth is the center and at vortex of creation, 
as is our moral privileges and responsibilities. These are revolutionary ideas that they teach to humanity, and they do it together, and they do it with tremendous dedication and sacrifice, and who they really have is each other. Avram and Sarah have each other. They have to stand together against the pagan idolatry of the time. Avram Avinu comes close to being killed. The Torah doesn't say this clearly, but we know from the Chazal that he was thrown in to the fiery furnace. And many other trials and tribulations, the ten tests that Avram and Sarah had that they had to endure together. Twice, Sarah directly saves Avram's life by pretending to be his sister instead of his wife both when they go down to Egypt because of a famine and later when they come to the Philistine region, the Plishtim and Avimelech wants to take Sarah and take Sarah. Avram would be murdered in both cases if they knew that he was the husband and Sarah saves his life. They hoped and prayed for a child and endured not years, but decades and decades of childlessness. At some point, Avram can't believe there's going to be a child. Sarah can't believe there's going to be a child. At the end... The miracle happens. They give birth to that baby child. Yitzchak is born, as we said, Sarah was 90, Avram Avinu was 100. One can only appreciate the bond, the relationship that this couple had with each other. Not only were they husband and wife, this is the first Jewish man and the first Jewish woman. It's the two people Hashem chose to send on this lone journey, and they did it together. And after a century, Avram Avinu becomes a father. After 90 years, Sarah becomes a mother. The bond is inexplicable at this point. And now, Sarah's life draws to a close. She passes away at the age of 127. The Torah says, Avram, Avram comes to grieve for Sarah, to weep for Sarah, to mourn for Sarah. It's the first time we have a story of a funeral and a burial People earlier were also buried, but there's no story of burial in Torah till this point, what Avram does for Sarah. It's the first time somebody buys a burial plot. And not just for her, for him too. Which means he recognizes that their relationship on some level is immortal. Because why does he want to be buried with Sarah? Her life was terminated. But Avram says, no, I want to be with Sarah after I pass away. That's why he buys the Maris HaMachpelah, where there's room for couples. And the same will be with Yitzchak and Rivka. The same will be with Yaakov and Leah. So Avram buys a cave where she's going to be buried and he should be able to be buried with him. We would expect after such a life that Avram Avinu lived the remainder of his life alone. With Yitzchak. He had a son Yitzchak. He had a new daughter in Lord Rivka. But that's not what happens, and it's very unexpected. Once Yitzchak gets married, the next scene is it's time for Avram to get remarried. And he marries this woman named Keturah, and it's literally the next Pasuk after Yitzchak's marriage. There's no break in between. The Gemara in Baba Kama says something very, I guess, humorous and interesting, and that is there's nothing like a hungry person seeing everybody else eating, and he's the only one without food. That's how the Gemara describes the sequence. Avram Avinu sees Yitzchak blissful with his wife Rivka, and he decides also to get married. That's how the Gemara in Baba Kama explains this. Yet, it's still a little difficult to understand. Okay, Avram is older, he doesn't want to be alone, so he marries a woman named Keturah. But it, it's, it seems a little, uh, I don't know, anticlimactic or strange after this journey with Sarah that it's like, Okay, now there's a new woman, Keturah, after everything they have been through together. 
Besides, who is this woman? Where did she come from? Was she really a good replacement? For so well, nobody can replace anybody. I mean, every, every the Gemara says, uh, <coughs> you know, there's a substitute for everything besides a first wife. Gemara compares it to the Churban Beis HaMikdash. It's what Yaakov told Yosef, Rachel died on me. It's like I felt the whole burden of it. So obviously, you know, there's no replacement. But a person forges ahead and creates a life. And every life has its unique story, its unique contribution, its unique, its unique beauty, its unique blessing. And that's part of the triumph and the balance of, 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 the, of the human story, which is often very moving, very emotional, sometimes very painful and always very deep. But who was this woman? We never heard of Keturah. Where did she come from? What is the episode telling us? Is it just an incidental detail? The Torah is saying, by the way, I want you to know, he got married again. Now, the truth is that in Torah, we don't see any incidental details that are not part of a larger narrative, a larger story. For example, after all these parashiyas, we have absolutely no idea what Avram Avinu looked like. I know there are Rembrandt paintings, but I don't think Rembrandt was around at the time. And Avram Avinu, for whatever reason, didn't allow anybody to take photos, nor did he take a selfie. We don't know what Avram Avinu looked like. We don't know what Sarah looked like. We know that Avram said, I know how beautiful you are, but we don't know what she looked like. We also don't know what Adam and Chava looked like. We don't even know in Chumash the name of the servant that he sent to find a wife for Yitzchak. Again, our sages identify him as Eliezer. But Chumash does not say his name. Why? The answer is the Torah does not include any detail that is not relevant somehow to the story. We don't know what Moshe Rabbeinu looked like. You know, you read Lahavdal, any novel, they right away open up, right? Every character is described. Sometimes you have to read four pages about their demeanor and their disposition and the halo around their face, and the shadows they cast, and the type of eyes, and the type of gaze, and the physique, and the, a lot of details. Somehow the novelist feels that that's how he or she will schlep you in to the story so that you can actually be there. We have very little of that in the Torah. The Torah speaks about Yosef's beauty, but it's only because it's relevant to the story about the wife of Petifar, who takes a liking to him. We learn about Avshalom's long hair, only because it's an essential part of the story, because that ultimately leads to his death when his hair gets entangled in the tree, running away from his father when he rebelled against him, etc. So when the Torah points out certain details, it's never just, you know, let's put in another few details for the story to make it more interesting. Ramavina lived 175 years. How many stories do we know of those 175 years? Five, six, seven. What was he doing all those years? Yitzchak lived 180 years. How many stories do we know about him? We know that he was brought to the Akedah, we know that he was digging wells, and we know that he wanted to give the blessings to Esau and ended up giving the blessings to Yaakov. What happened over 180 years? Go figure. It's not relevant to us. The Jews traveled in the desert 40 years. What did they do for 40 years? We know around eight or nine stories that happened during those 40 years. Big, important stories. Story of the spies, the story of Kairach, the story of the Messiah. We know a few big stories. But what happened for the rest of the 40 years? What was a regular Tuesday afternoon like? I don't know. The point is, as the Zayar says, that the word Torah is Milash and Haira. The word Torah doesn't mean only law. Torah comes from the word lesson. In other words, it's a lesson, it's an instruction, it's a blueprint for life. 
So therefore, there's no just incidental details. So now the question is, Avram's second marriage, what is it teaching us? Is it part of a larger story? What was going on here? Obviously, it was consequential, and there's something we have to know about it. What is it, and how is it integral to the narrative? Let's go to clue number three. Avram Avinu remarries. He has six children. He sends them, sends the children out to the east. He gives them gifts. And then his life comes to a close. And we read about it in Chayesorich of Hates, just nine verses later. Genesis 25, verse 9. Avram Avinu passes away at 175. And the Torah says, Vayikbiru oisoi. Yitzchak and Yishmael bring Avram Avinu to burial. They bury him. Where do they bury him? In the cave of the Machpelah, in that field that Avram Avinu purchased from Ephron, the Chittite, the son of Tzochar, in the region of Mamre. That's where the cave is in Hebron. That's where Avram Avinu gets buried. Wow. Yitzchak and Yishmael. Yishmael is here in the story. Yitzchak and Yishmael buried him. And right away, the student says, how in the world did Yishmael end up at this funeral? We read in Parshas Vayera that Yishmael growing up in Yitzchak's home as Avram's first son, who he gave birth to, who he fathered from Hagar, who was Sarah's maidservant, Yishmael was metzachek as Yitzchak. He was jesting with Yitzchak. Rashi interprets it. He was threatening Yitzchak with murder with adultery, with idolatry. And Sarah says he really can't remain in the home. Avram wants to keep him in the home. This is a debate between the husband and the wife. Avram and Sarah. And Hashem tells Avram Avinu famously, Whatever Sarah tells you, you should listen to her. And he sends Yishmal and his mother away. According to the Pirkei de Rebelezer, chapter 30, Yishmal at the time was 24 years old. Yitzchak at the time was 10 years old. Yishmael was 13, 14 years older than Yitzchak. So Yishmael was sent away. He was sent away from the home. He went with his mother, Hagar. They were gone. Sarah would not let them back in the house. What is Yishmael doing here? Where did he make this comeback? When did this happen? He was sent away into the desert when Yitzchak was young. Now Yitzchak is not young anymore. Avram Avinu died at 175. Yitzchak was a man of 75 years of age. 65 years ago, Yishmael was sent away from the house. Yitzchak was a lad. Yitzchak was a young child. That's why Sarah was so upset. Sarah was so threatened. Haven't these two stepbrothers lived in isolation, far apart from each other? How did they make contact? Did Yitzchak send a delegation to Yishmael to tell him that Avram Avinu passed away and Yishmael decided to come and pay respects and be at the funeral and actually bury his father Avram? What about all the tension between them? What about the terrible conflict that must have ensued? The Torah doesn't tell us the background. The Torah puts them together at the funeral without a word of explanation. You know, if you're telling me a story about a family, and you're telling me how 65 years ago, this family split. There was a terrible conflict, a misunderstanding, and they split. And they didn't live in the same neighborhood and didn't talk to each other. Completely drifted away to two different countries. They went to Egypt. Yitzchak remained in Canaan. 
Yitzchak lives with his father, Avram and Sarah, then he marries Rivka. Suddenly, without even an explanation, the two brothers are together. Where, what, when, how, a little background. Torah doesn't give any explanation. This is clue number three. Our sages didn't read these three isolated items and just see them as mysteries. Mysteries that have to be explained and mysteries for which they had no explanation. They saw them as clues. And the story they pieced together is enthralling. And let's see what they did and how they did it. Okay? We begin with clue number one. Whoops. We begin with clue number one, which is, you remember the well. As Eliezer comes back, as Avram's servant comes back with Rivka, he's going to meet Yitzchak. Yitzchak ba mi boy be'er lachairoi. He was coming from coming, or coming from returning, from this well. And of course, the way to identify, one possible meaning is, did we ever hear of this well before? Whenever you learn Chumash, whenever you learn Tanakh, one way of thinking about things is, did we ever hear about this before? If we heard about this before, we want to go back to where we heard about it before, because that may give us a clue. Whenever we read a story, we read about a location or a certain theme or a certain conversation, and that brings up, it triggers up a memory from a similar event or a very dissimilar event, but this happened there or something similar happened, we look for the contact, for the connection. In fact, it's one of the 13 methods of interpreting Torah called Gzei Shava. Gzei Shava means when there's a similar word in two places, it's not by accident. We consider it that it was a copy paste type of thing. <laughs> That's the origin of copy paste. Rebbeinu Shalom's copy paste before Microsoft Windows. On a typewriter, there was no such a thing copy paste, right? You remember? Yeah. There was no, you don't copy paste. You made a mistake. At best, you can use whiteout. And after a few times, it's a brachel of atollah. You got to throw out the piece of paper and bring in a new piece of paper and start all over again. The computer revolution allowed us that literally nothing I write can go to waste. If it doesn't belong in this sentence, I'll just cut it and put it there. So there's cut and paste and there's copy and paste. Gzei is the concept of copy and paste. If this word is two times, three times, four times, there's a connection. It's not coincidental. But it's also true about words. It's also true about names. It's the concept called Gzei So when one sees that Yitzchak was coming back from this well, and I have to know that he had a relationship with this well, I ask myself, where do I remember this well from? And of course, we remember it from where? Look at your first source sheet. At your first source in your source sheets. And by the way, all the source sheets are posted on theyeshiva.net, so if anybody wants to review it, they're always there. Parshas Lech Lecha, Perik Tes Zion, Pasuk Yudala, Genesis 16, 14. Let's remember the story. Hagar marries Avram Avinu. Sarah is the one who suggested it because she couldn't have children, so she wanted her mate to marry Avram, and hopefully the family can have a future. Maybe she'll be able to raise that child, maybe she'll be able to be blessed in that merit. Hagar marries Sarah, and then, of course, the extraordinary happens. Hara becomes pregnant. Sarah is now being denigrated by Hagar. Hagar is disrespectful to Sarah. Sarah gets very upset. <laughs> and Avram Avinu hears about how upset she is. She's very sharp. Hamasi Alecha. 
the abuse I'm experiencing in the hands of Hagar is because of you. And Avram gives her permission to do what she wants and she works Hagar hard and Hagar leaves the home. And where does Hagar go to? Hagar goes out. She's in the wilderness and the Torah discusses she's at a well and she encounters an angel. And the angel asks her where she's coming from and what happened and she tells her the whole story. And the angel says, don't worry, you're going to have an amazing child. You're going to enjoy the child. His name is going to be Yishmael. You'll call him Yishmael, which means Yishmael, God listens. Go back to Sarah, go back to the house. And then the terrorist says, this is the well where she saw the presence of God. Alkain kara la be'er, be'er lachai roi. And therefore this well got a name. And the name was be'er lachai roi, is the well. Literally, of Lachai Roy, where I got to see the living presence of God. It's between a location called Kadesh and Barad. That's where we first read about this well. It's the well where Hagar met the angels who promised her she would have a child, Yishmael, who promised her there will be a bright and beautiful future for who and her child, for her and her child, who told her to go back to Avram and Sarah's house, which she does. And she gives birth to a baby. And Avram names him Yishmael. And it's later in Parshas Vayera. When Yishmael is older. And Yitzchak is born. And now Yishmael can't get along with Yitzchak. There is terrible conflict. And Sarah wants Yishmael and Hagar sent away from the home. And that's what Avram Avinu does. Another fascinating thing is. If you look at the third source, After Avram passes away, Hashem blesses Yitzchak, and where does Yitzchak choose to live? He chooses to live near the well of Lachairoi. This is after Avram Avinu's passing, when Yitzchak himself is older, he decides to go live near that well. Why near that well? Another very interesting clue. Now suddenly, in the middle of these two stories, Yitzchak is 40. His father sends a servant to bring him a soulmate, to bring him a wife. Rivka comes back. And Yitzchak is coming from this well. What's the significance of this? Why does the Torah want me to know this? This is something very interesting. Yitzchak is coming from this well. That's when he's going to meet his wife Rivka. And I have to know this before he meets his wife Rivka. What is he doing at Be'er Lachairoi? Why is he there? And he's not just there. He's frequenting it. He's coming from coming. He came before from there. Yesterday, maybe two days ago, maybe a week ago. Later he's going to live there. He's not living there. He may be living in the area, some of the Mepharshim say. The Sepharno, the Ebenezer, the Ramban, they all discuss this question. The Ramban says maybe he used to go pray there because that's where Hagar saw angels. So he thought that's a great place to daven. <laughs> Very interesting interpretation of the Ramban. What else could it be? What else could it be? And this is where Chazal started to identify the clue. Was he maybe reaching out to somebody? Was he maybe looking for somebody? Was there something sitting on Yitzchak's chest and heart that he had to deal with before he gets married? Before he himself starts building his own future, which of course would become the future of the Jewish people, because Yitzchak and Rivka together would give birth. Rivka would of course birth, give birth to Yaakov and his twin Esav. But before that happens, Yitzchak, who's still a single person, in America they call him a bachelor, 
But with Yitzchok, you'll call him a, a bocher. <laughs> bocher means, in, in Hebrew, there's two words, ravak and bocher. Ravak means a bachelor. Bocher means chosen. <laughs> Explain that to your bocher. There's a ravak, is a bachelor. A bocher is chosen. So Yitzchak, who's still at that point, he's older, he's an older bocher, he's 40 years old, is frequenting this well. For how long? The Torah doesn't say. But is he looking for something? Is he looking for somebody? And that's where our sages saw the answer to the clue. Yitzchak was looking to reconcile with Hagar and with Yishmael, his stepbrother. Yitzchak wasn't just going to Be'elach and spending time there because he liked wells. There were other wells. Because this is that well where Hagar initially encountered the Divine Presence. So this was her go-to place for prayer. This was her go-to place for meditation. This may have been the place where she was living. Later, when she gets banished from Avram's house, the water goes out, and she sees another well where the water, where she can give, where she could quench the thirst of Ishmael. But here the Torah doesn't give the name of the well. Is it the same well? Is it not the same well? We don't know. One can speculate about that. But certainly the first well, the Torah says, is Be'er Lachairoi. So let's see how Rashi puts this. And Rashi is, of course, quoting the Medrash Rabbah, so this is directly from the sages. Rashi Chayesarech of Dalat Samach Beis. Mi boi be'ei lachairoi, shaholach lahavi hagar, la'avram aviv. Wow. Yitzchak, who is the son of Sarah, was pursuing hagar. He wanted to bring hagar back to Avram, his father. Why? Sheyisa'enah. He should remarry her. That's what he was trying to do. Now you would wonder, Yitzchak, what about respect to your mommy? Yitzchak, you're Sarah's boy. She gave everything to have you. She had you at 90. She rejoiced with every fiber of her being. What did Sarah say after Yitzchak was born? God made me laugh. God generated laughter in me. Whoever hears my story laughs together with me. How much joy she brought to Sarah. He brought to Sarah. And not only that, we see how pained he was after her death. He could not comfort himself. The Torah clearly says, only after he marries Rivka and he loves her does he find some solace for his mother. Why is that mentioned in Chumash? Because Yitzchak was struggling. Sarah passed away at 127. He was 37. For three years he was grieving his mother. Not just a month, not just two months, not just a year. For three years he couldn't console himself for Sarah. We can understand the level of the relationship. How did Sarah even die according to many of the Midrashim? Because she heard about the Akedah. doesn't say that clearly in Chumash, but the sequence of the Akedah to Sarah's death leads Rashi and some of the sages to say there was a connection between them. And only after Rivka gets married to Yitzchak, Vayinachim Yitzchak Achrei And yet, already before... He's by He's looking for Hagar. Rashi says he's looking for Hagar. He wants to bring her back. Well, he wants to bring Yishmael back. This is extraordinary. It's fascinating. And Rashi continues. Yoshev Be'eretz Hanegev. He was living in the south. Karev Wow. He moved. He was living near that well. Shenemar Vayisa Misham Avram Artsa Hanegev Vayeshu Ben Kadesh Ben Shur Vesham Ayabesh Nemahini Ben Kadesh Ben Barat. 
Avram Avinu traveled to the south. He lived between Kaddish and Shur. And Rashi says that's where the, the well was, as it says in Parshas Lechelcha. It was between Kaddish and Barat. So if Avram Avinu was living in that area, Yitzchak Avinu was living near this well. So Yitzchak would frequent it. And there was a purpose. He was meeting Hagar. And likely he was meeting Yishmael. And they continue with this clue. So now when it says, Vayosef Avram Vayikach Isho Shmokturah, Yosef, Yosef continued and he married a woman named Keturah. And the Medrash of Pirkei de Rebeliezer asks, what's Vayosef? Vayosef means when you add to something you did earlier, right? Lahosif, hosafa. I gave you $100, I want to be Moisef, I want to add something. What's the Vayosef Avram? Avram added, <laughs> he added another woman in his life? No, Sarah passed away. This is a new event, it's a new story. The sages say, no, it's not a new story. It's a continued story. Rashi says this. Take a look at the next Rashi. Ketura from Bereshis Rabbah. Zu Hagar. Avram Avinu remarried Hagar. One second. So why doesn't the Torah say her name was Ketura? Why do, I'm sorry, why doesn't the Torah say her name was Hagar? Why get so confusing? This is very confusing. Now, it's not unusual for the Torah to have many names for a person. Yisroi in Chumash has seven names. There's the old joke that he married off seven daughters and after each chasana he went bankrupt. So he changed his name. He put everything on his wife's name and he changed his name. So he changed his name seven times. That's what happens when you make seven chasanas. That's an old, you know, Yiddish joke. But it's not unusual for the Torah to do this, to give another name. It happens. We see it and we see it more than once. Even Sarah herself, according to Rashi, is called Yiska. At the end of Noach, she's called Yiska. People used to gaze at her beauty. But why would you change the name? So Rashi says, Al Because her acts gave off a fragrance like amazing incense. Ketura is from the word Ketiris, which is, of course, one of the services in the Mishkan Abbas. daily where they would burn Insets and it generated an amazing fragrance and aroma throughout the Mishkan of the Beis Hamikdash and throughout Yerushalayim. So Ketiris, Ketura comes out to Ketiris. There was something so fragrant and beautiful and splendid and sweet about her maizim, about her actions. Rashi continues, V'shekashra Pischa, she tied her door. The word Ketiris in Hebrew comes from the word Keter, which means a kesher. In Aramaic, Ketiris is also a bond, a connection. Rabbi Shimon Ben Yechai speaks about the day of his passing, Lagbaimer. He says, Bechad Ketira is Katarna. I have become bound up in oneness. So Rashi says there's a second interpretation to Ketura. First of all, her acts were, gave forth fragrance, gave forth such beauty like fragrance, like incense. Her acts gave forth fragrance like incense. But there's something else. Shlainizdafka la Adam miyoyim shepirsha meavraham. Since the day she left Avraham, she did not have intimacy with anybody else. She remained katur, ketiris, ketura, connected to Avraham Avinu. You would think an Egyptian princess, Avraham Avinu said it's time to leave, it's not really going to work. So Hagar would think about a few different type of future. No. Her connection with Avraham Avinu was still very profound, even though they were technically not together, they were divorced. Two interpretations in ketiris. That's why she's named Keturah. Because of this. 
So the Chazal see here the second clue. Avram Yitzchak was successful. <laughs> he was successful. He brought back Sar- He brought back Hagar, and she actually marries Avram Avinu shortly after Yitzchak marries Rivka. Which brings us to the third clue. When Avram Avinu passes away, years later, because remember, Avram Avinu was 140 when Yitzchak was married. Avram Avinu passed away at 175, so this is years later. Who buries Avram Avinu? Where did Yishmael come back? Clue number three. If Yitzchak was going to the well to get Hagar, if Avram Avinu remarried Hagar, so Hagar's son Yishmael was not isolated anymore. Says Rashi, Mikan Sha'asu Yishmol Yishmol Tshuva. From here we learn that Yishmol did Tshuva. He didn't remain the same youngster who threatened to murder Yitzchak, to engage Yitzchak in idolatry and adultery. He did Tshuva. Furthermore, he was older than Yitzchak, but he let Yitzchak go ahead of him. Yitzchak led the funeral. Yitzchak led the procession. Why? Usually the older child goes in front. The answer is because he recognized the unique kinship between Yitzchak and, Rif- between Yitzchak and Avram. Yitzchak was the spiritual ear and successor of Avram. Yitzchak would be the one who would continue the legacy of Avram, Avinu, and Sarah. Monotheism, the Amunah, which would become Yiddishkeit and the Jewish people. Yishmael recognized that as part of his tshuva. Yitzchak, you go first, I'm here. And Rashi says, this is the Seva Teva. Hashem promised Avram Avinu by the Brisbane Absarim that you're going to pass away by Seva Teva in good old age. It doesn't only mean that he lived to the ripe old age of 175. It means something much more. That he lived to see his children reconciled. Sometimes a person lives a long life, biologically, an affluent life financially, but there's discord in the family. Siblings are not speaking to each other. There's conflict. It's very sad, it's very painful. Sometimes the conflicts are created because of petty things, sometimes larger things. But usually, usually nothing that's deserving to create such a split in a family that brothers and sisters can't talk to each other, parents and children are alienated from each other, grandparents and grandchildren are alienated from each other, uncles and aunts and nephews and nieces can't look at each other, can't say good Shabbos, can't join at Simchas, certainly can't have fun with each other. What was the Seva Teva, the good old age that Avram Avinu received, that Yishmael will be able to walk together with Yitzchak hand in hand? Yishmael will do tshuva, Yishmael will actually be there at those final moments when they said goodbye to Avram. That's an incredible moment. That's Rashi says is a Seva Teva that he got. And now we'll wonder, but why, how did this all happen? Why was, is this a smack in the face, forgive me, to Sarah? Would Avram Avinu smack Sarah in the face? I don't understand. She, she threw out Hagar and Yishmael. And Hashem told him to listen. It's not like he could say, you know, Sarah, okay, Sarah took it personal. Hashem said to listen to Sarah. And here Yitzchak and Avram have their own plot. They're doing their own thing. And from all people, Yitzchak, he knew why Sarah threw out Yishmael. It was just for him. It wasn't for her. Sarah wasn't afraid of Yishmael. He wasn't bothering her. Hagar and Yishmael were subservient to Sarah and, Yitzchak, to Sarah and Avram. It was for Yitzchak, the little kid Yitzchak. Let's now see 
the story, the way it's articulated in Medrash, in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer is one of the earlier Medrashim, the chapter of Eliezer that comes from the great Tanner, Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol. He was the Rebbe of Rabbi Akiva. So he lived during the destruction, the era of the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. He's known as Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, Rabbi Eliezer the Great, one of the greatest sages of his day. And he, he's a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus has this medrash called Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, and there he tells the story. It's a long story. I took out a few lines from here. I want you to hear what happens after Avram Avinu sends away Hagar and Yishmael from the home. Already back in Parshas Vayera, the medrash says Yishmael was 24, Yitzchak was 10 years old. So Avram Avinu was still much younger. Sarah was alive. Avram Avinu was 110 Sarah was 100, Sarah still had 27 years to live. And at this point, Hashem tells Avram Avinu to send Yishmael away. Says the Medrash, Sholach Yishmael, he sent Yishmael away, and Yishmael married a woman from Mayav. Mayav is in today's Jordan, on the east side of Eretz Yisrael, Petra. Three years later, Avram went for a visit to Yishmael. This doesn't say in Chumash, but this is what the Chazal, he went to, this was the tradition they had, he went to visit Yishmael. And the story is that he met a woman, this was Yishmael's wife, and he asked her, where's Yishmael? And she said Yishmael went to go, he went with his mother to go get dates from the desert. And Avram said, I traveled here a very long time. I need to be hydrated, I'm dehydrated, I'm exhausted, and I'm starving. Would you give me a little bread and water? And she refused him. So he sent a message to Yishmael. When your husband comes home, tell him that an old man came from the land of Canaan. And he told him, and he told you that you have to think about exchanging miftan um, habayis, the shvel of the house, that he said in English, the miftan, the, the threshold of the house needs to be altered. This was his intimation of Who's welcoming people into your house? You know, who's the welcoming committee? Right, I saw in some offices they have uh, the secretary who's sitting in the front desk, director of first impressions. <laughs> right, the director of first impressions is a very important job because I may not call back or come back. She rejects Avram Avinu. She's pretty uh, uh, insensitive to him. For Avraham, that's very hard to believe. And the Medrash says, Haven Yishmal. Yishmael came home, he understood. Vishalcha. Sooner, sooner than later, the marriage dissolved and it just didn't work out. And they got divorced. I'm sorry, Vehevin Yishmael, Yishmael understood, and the Medrash says they separated, they got divorced. Vishalcha imay velakhala So Mami, Hagar, sends and she finds a new woman for Yishmael from her father's home. Egypt, and this woman's name is Patima. This is Yishmael's second wife. Three years later, Avram goes to visit Yishmael. He comes in the middle of the day. He finds the spouse of Yishmael. Her name is Patima. He says, Where's your husband? She says, He and his mother... <laughs> He was a mom's boy, apparently. Went to shepherd. <laughs> you relate to it, huh? Mom's boy, yeah. I don't know how old he was, but he was mom's boy. 
She was still making the chalaptas for him. They went to shepherd the camels in the desert. Omar La, Avram says to Patima, Please give me some bread and water. I am exhausted from the long road, from the long journey through the wilderness. She took out bread and water, and she gave it to this stranger. Of course, following the tradition of her husband and her great father-in-law, who she didn't know she's talking to her father-in-law, who fed and offered hospitality to everybody, whether you knew them or you didn't know them, as discussed at length in last week's class, what Hachnas Sarchim is, and how we learn it from Avram Avinu. Ahmad Avram, Avram stood up. And he stood there in the tent, and he davened to Hashem for his son. And the home of Yishmael filled up with all abundance, all types of blessings that one can ask for, the home became saturated with them because of Avram's prayers. When Yishmael came home, he she told him the whole story. Now listen to these words. At that point, Yishmael realized, that Avram never stopped loving him. That Avram's love and compassion was still strong, existing towards him as a father, as a parent has compassion for children. That's what Yishmael was cognizant of at that moment. When he heard about Avram's behavior, he saw what Avram did for him. He saw what happened to the home as a result. That's when he realized he was cognizant that even though Avram sent him away from the house, the feelings, the connection, the bonding that Avram had with Yishmael was still powerful. Adayon ad achshav rachamei aviv alav kirachim av al bonam. So at both of the occasions, Yishmael is not home. At the first occasion, the wife, not knowing his identity, the identity of the stranger, rejects him. She will not give him water or bread. So Yishmael divorces her and he marries Fatima. This time when Avram visits, what happens? He still, <coughs> he comes there and he meets the woman and he asks for the same thing. He still doesn't disclose his identity, but she gives him the bread and the drinks. And that's when Yishmael knows that his father still loves him. He figures it out. What do we see by Avram Avinu's passing? Yishmael is there. Yishmael came back. Yishmael honored Yitzchak. Yishmael did tshuva. Yes. Yes. But that doesn't say, she's asking a question, why am I talking about the funeral? Talk about the Akeda. It says that Avram Avinu, Vayashkam Avram Baboiker, Vayikach has shnei na'or of Itoi, right? He took his two lads. Chazal say, who was it? Yishmael and Eliezer. So it doesn't say clearly in the Chumash. Then he told Right, you stay here. He tells them, You stay with the donkey. I'm going to go and I'm going to come back. We're all going to come back. So Chazal interpret that person to be Yishmael. How did Yishmael fall into the Akedah? Now that was also much later in the story. Because the Akedah happens right before, right before Sarah's passing. And we see that Yitzchak has been visiting the well. So it all comes together. I didn't mention that in the clues because it's not explicit in the Chumash. 
So that itself is a teaching from the sages. You understand? That's why I didn't use that. I was using here the clues in the text itself. It's here that the story comes together. Thank you. Very good question. It's here that the story comes together because it really teaches us a different dimension of the story. Avram Avinu's connection to Hagar was obviously a profound one. Yishmael was Avram Avinu's son as he was Hagar's son. And here we are introduced to two dimensions of the Jewish people. And as everything among the Jewish people, it begins with Avram and Sarah and continues with Yitzchak and Rivka and then of course Yaakov and his wives and children until today. And these are two dimensions. One is the Jewish people's responsibility to the Jewish people as the Jewish people. We can call that our responsibility to ourselves as a distinct nation. Because don't take that for granted, what the Jewish people had to do to be able to retain their identity through thick and thin over millennia is something, as Rabbi Yaakov Emden writes, that the greatest miracle that ever happened in Jewish history, bigger than the splitting of the sea and bigger than the exodus of Egypt, is Jewish survival. And Jewish survival as Jews. Because every great empire ultimately dissolved after a hundred years or a few hundred years, even the Roman Empire, and Rome, or Egyptians, or the ancient Persians, or Assyrians, or Greeks, or Byzantines, ultimately dissolved and assimilated in the conquering nation, or other native tribes, which was to be expected of the tiny, tiny little Jewish people who century after century were being hunted down, and yet, with extraordinary courage and sacrifice, they tenaciously clung to their identity, till today, to remain Jews who not only survived, but thrived. That was the credit of Avram Avinu, who tells the Bnei Ches, when he wants to buy the plot, I am a citizen, but also Geir. I must be, know who I am, I'm also a foreigner. True to himself, true to herself, Avram Avinu and Sarah. Unlike Loit, who runs away to assimilate Avram and Sarah, remain true to their identity, and ultimately they're honored for it. Bnei Ches saying, You're a prince of God. That's one dimension of the Jewish people. And a dimension that is extraordinary, that after thousands of years, we're still here. In 1989, the Dalai Lama summoned a group of Jews, and he asked them a question. The, the, the Buddhists have been exiled from their native home by the Chinese in the 1950s, Tibet. And they have been in exile for close to for seven, seven decades, six, seven decades. So the Dalai Lama said he sees that the next generations will not be able to hold on to the identity exiled from their homeland. So he called the experts. Who are the experts? So he calls in a group of Jews to find out how the Jews managed to live for thousands of years in foreign countries and not assimilate. It's fascinating. The Dalai Lama understood that the experts on retaining identity in foreign civilizations, under difficult circumstances, are the Jewish people. Now, you want to know what the Jews told them? Narishkeiten. But, but it's, it's recorded in a book called The Jew and the Lotus by Roger Kamenetz. He wrote the whole story. I mean, some things were Narishkeiten, some things were not. It's not for now. But the point is, this is one element. But there's another element. And the other element, we often didn't have the mental space to ever focus on, for obvious reasons. The Rambam writes in Hilchus Malachim something fascinating. 
that when the Jewish people got the Torah at Har Sinai, Moshe Rabbeinu gave them another commandment. In the name of Hashem, that they should influence the whole world. Lekabel mitzvah, sheva mitzvah, shenetzavu b'nei noyach. Responsibility for all 7.7 billion citizens of the world to live a moral, ethical life based on goodness and kindness of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noyach, which the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai is basic code of civilization, not to steal and not to murder and to respect family life and to respect the Creator and to respect animal life and to create systems of justice. The Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noyach, which were given already to the B'nai Noyach after the flood, they were given to the B'nai Noyach, says the Rambam that the Jews were given a mitzvah from Hashem to influence the entire world to observe all the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noyach. The Sifarno writes, it says by Kaddish. You shall be a kingdom of princesses and a holy nation. It says, what does it mean that every Jew should be a kingdom of princesses? What does that mean? He says to understand that their leaders, moral leaders, to be able to influence in a positive way all of mankind. That's their mandate. The Yerushalmi says in Meseches Nadarim, the famous Yerushalmi, Chapter 9 that Rabbi Akiva said, Loving your fellow Jew is a great principle in Torah. Ben Azai says that there's a more important principle. What's the more important principle? Zes Sefer told us Adam. This is the book of the story of Adam created in the image of God. So the Karbanaida says, Why is that a greater principle? And he answers, this is in Yerushalmi, Ben Azai is telling Rabbi Akiva, is the unique love and sensitivity a Jew has to have to a Jew. But there's something grander, and that is that the Torah teaches every human being was created in the image of God, and the Jewish people were chosen to share that, to teach that, that every single person has non-negotiable and absolute divine value and dignity. As Rabbi Akiva himself says in Perkeyavis, Chaviv Adam, Shenivra B'Tselem. Every person is precious because he was created in Hashem's image. So that's the second passage that speaks about the fact that every person, every human being was created in the image of God. And Zeth Sefer told us, Adam, that we all ultimately come, everybody comes from one father and one mother. As Chazal say in Sanhedrin 38, that throughout history, people turn to each other and say, I'm greater than you, you're inferior to me. So God made Adam as one person, so nobody could say, my father, you know, you say my father is bigger than your father, right? <laughs> my mother is greater than your mother. My, our fathers are one. Ultimately, it goes back to one. Fascinating idea that the sages teach. Now, throughout much of our history, the Jewish people were so downtrodden and dejected, the last thing they could think about was, so how do we influence all of the Gentiles to observe the Sheva Mitzvah? <laughs> Little benefit would come to them if the regimes and the governments found out that they're busy influencing non-Jews to observe Shavu Mitzvahs B'nai Nayach. If they can only be left alone to observe their own mitzvahs, they were more than happy and breathed a thigh of relief that we could live our own lives. It's fascinating that now, close to the Geula, we live in a time of history that Jews actually have the ability to become part of the moral conversation of mankind and are seen and can be seen as moral teachers, as moral instructors, that could really influence people in, 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 in a very powerful and deep way. But because of our long and bloody and difficult history, Jews don't see it often that way. You know, naturally we have that tribal instinct which has tremendous milus because it saved the Jews from assimilation, but sometimes deprives us of understanding our true ability 
to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth. As the Rambam says in Hilchus Malachim 11, that when Mashiach is Yisakin es kola oilam kula, he's going to repair the whole world to serve under one God. La'avdoi, az epoch al-amim, he quotes the Navi, az epoch al-amim safa brura, likre kulam b'shem Hashem, la'avdoi kulam shechem echad. That all of humanity will be united under the banner, under the sovereignty. As we say, Rosh Hashanah, we pray, And it's interesting, there's two days that highlight the uniqueness of the Jewish people. You have Yom Kippur and Pesach. <coughs> Just once in a shir from Rabbi Yashar Salavechik, he said, Yom Kippur, at the end of Yom Kippur, towards the end, we do Mafta Yoyna. Nobody knows why Mafta Yoyna. A whole story about Yoyna being sent to Nineveh, who were corrupt people, and he gets, doesn't want to go, and he gets swallowed in a fish, and ultimately he tells them in 40 days Nineveh will be turned over, and the whole Nineveh does tshuva. We, we, why does it come into Yom Kippur? The answer is tshuva. But there's so many psukim that deal with the tshuva of Jews. The mafter Yoyna at the end of Yom Kippur is not the tshuva of Jews. Yoyna didn't even want to go. He was arguing with God. And one suggestion is because the whole Yom Kippur focuses on the intimate relationship of the Jew and Hashem. Ki anu amecha v'ata avinu. Anu tzaynecha v'ata reyeinu. Anu amecha v'ata malkeinu. Anu kalecha v'ata chalkeinu. Anu karmecha v'ata neitreinu. Anu rayasecha v'ata daideinu. Etc. Etc. Comes the end of Yom Kippur and we say yeah. And when the Jew is truly anchored in Judaism, remember... <laughs> That you're also a prophet. As the Novi Yeshaya said about the Jewish people, God says, I have made you a light unto the nations. That ultimately you have that ability, that power to be a leader, to inspire the world, to inspire the world towards family values, towards ethics, towards goodness, towards kindness. To live with an achdus, to live with Sheva Mitzvah B'nai which means to live with the understanding that every person was created in the divine image and has infinite dignity and value and is responsible to live a life that makes their own life and their world around them a good place, a better place, and that God cares about every person and their behavior. Imagine if every public school was saturated with this awareness. Somebody called me the other day. They were complaining about... <coughs> let's call it more on the modern side, about Jewish schools, and they were thinking of putting their kids in public school. I said, listen, <laughs> our schools have challenges. If you don't believe me, you could watch Rabbi YY's clips, for which he gets in trouble sometimes. We have challenges. There's things to repair. There's things to fix. There's a lot of things to fix. We could be critical about a lot of things, but I just want you to know one thing. You can go into any Jewish day school around the world. It could be Satme, Babe, Vizhnitz, Pope, Modern Orthodox, Litvish, Yeshivish, very Modern Orthodox, Conservadox, right wing, left wing, very left wing, very white right wing, very centrist. This type of yarmulke, that type of yarmulke, this shitta, that shitta, all the whole gamut. You will not find a metal detector in the entrance. That's a fact. Not in Gold is Green, not in Monroe, not in Muncie, not in Lakewood, not in Toronto, not in Crown Heights, not in Borough Park, not in Meisharim, and not in Long Island or Westchester. A metal detector you won't find. Now go into every public school. 
Why is that? You think that comes from nothing? I said, just remember that. <laughs> remember that. Because Jewish kids, from the milk of their mother, are saturated with the idea of loy sertzach. It's, it's, it's entrenched. There were Jews who had a hard time. I'm not justifying. Just they had a hard time killing Nazis. Killing the SS when they had an opportunity. And some didn't. Perhaps it was the wrong decision. I'm not discussing that now. But it was a hard for them. It was hard for them. Why? Because in the blood, in, in, the, in the blood, in the DNA, there's loy sertzach. Ubachar tabachayim. Every prayer, Oyser Shalom, Huyaser Shalom Aleinu. A world of peace, a world of Gula, a world of Mashiach. But the role of the Jewish people was really to, to do the best we can. And there comes a point in history where Hashem gives the Jewish people a gift to be able to impact and influence people that we know personally uh, through the web, globally, collectively, individually, and in mass. But that's the time in history. And people crave it, they yearn it, because there's so much anxiety and confusion, moral anxiety and emotional anxiety, psychological anxiety. It all begins with Avram Avinu. Hashem changes Avram's name from Avram to Avraham. And he says, why Avraham? Before you were Avram, you were a father for Aram. But now, ultimately you'll be a father for all the nations. Right when he tells Avram to leave Choran and go to Canaan, he says, All the nations of the world will be blessed by you. Now it's a fascinating thing. I said a few weeks ago, if somebody was making up this text and claiming it was God, it would be foolish to make a promise that one man living thousands of years ago will become the symbol of blessing of all the nations of the world. You look today, close to half of humanity considers itself to be spiritual ears of Avram Avinu. Of course, the Jewish people. But you have the Christians, you have the Muslims, they all consider themselves to be spiritual ears. You're talking about billions and billions of people. All consider themselves to be spiritual children of this man, Avram Avinu. Whether through Yitzchak, or the Muslims through Yishmael, so Avram Avinu, ultimately, his vision is a vision for the Jewish people, but it's a vision for the world. It's that the world should become a blessed place. But God and Avram and Sarah, the most Sarah, the Yiddish Imam understood there's no way that can happen if the Jewish people are not anchored in themselves with full confidence. Because if I go out, but I'm not strong enough, I'm really weak, I'm ambivalent, I'm going to get lost. That's what happens to assimilation. How can you go out and not be overwhelmed by the sheer quantity and power of the secular embrace, whatever that meant throughout history? So Sarah was the one who safeguarded the Jewish home like a mama bear, <laughs> protecting the home, safeguarding the home, making sure that there are absolute boundaries that Yitzchak should be able to grow up the person who Yitzchak has to become. That was Sarah's vision, that was Sarah's impact. And Avram Avinu was perturbed, because Yishmael is his son. But Hashem tells Avram Avinu, Sarah is klug. She's a klug She knows what she's doing, listen to Sarah. Avram Avinu sends away Yishmael. Now I get a call last week, a father calls me, and says, I heard you give a lecture the other day, that a parent should not throw a child out of the house. 
I know some must have been a psachidish to him. I don't know why, but fine. Maybe it's time for a child to move out, but it shouldn't be through severing the cords. Maybe they need a new home. Maybe they need a job. Maybe they need to be independent. Maybe they don't need your breakfast every day. Whatever it is, but it has to come from a place of connection and love. Now, of course, there are unique exceptions. Somebody is posing a physical danger, whatever. But 98, 99.9% of the time, I said a child does not sever cords. A parent should never sever cords with a child under any circumstances. Because the more the child is broken, the more they need the connection. That's going to heal them more than anything else. And trust me, no therapist in the world, even the best therapists, can do what a father and mother can do for a child. Sometimes there are great therapists, but no therapist in the world can do what a tati and mommy can do for a child. So this person calls me and says, I heard this shear. The only problem I'm having is you disagree with God. I said, me? <laughs> I disagree with God. I can't disagree with God. So Hashem told Avram Avinu, Whatever Sarah says, do. Sarah said, Garish, get Yishmal and Hagar out of my house. And he did it. How do you have the audacity to say one should not throw his child out of the house? Of course, I understood that this was a personal question because it's what he did with his child. I said, it's a wonderful question, my friend. And I'm going to give you four answers. Answer number one, no problem. You could follow Avram's example and throw your child out of the house. But one more thing, you got to send him with his mother. So that means your wife also has to leave the house. So let your wife and son leave the house. Let her raise him. And you know what? Your wife may be very happy, actually. That was just a joke. So that's not a problem. You want to send your son out of the house, just make sure he's with his mother. That's fine. Number two, I said. Number two. The moment God tells you to do it, I would also be the one to tell you to do it. Avram Avinu was told by Hashem to do it. He himself didn't want to. Avram Avinu was a holy man. Avram Avinu cared about Hashem. Why did he not want to do it? He didn't want to. Hashem told him to do it, he did it. I said, when Hashem tells you, to do it, I'm in. I'll help you. But till Hashem doesn't tell you to do it, be very, very careful. I'll tell you why. If you make a mistake and you decide that's what Hashem wants, you may be doing something that you will regret for eternity. You may go down to your grave with anxiety because of that moment. If you made a mistake... And maybe Hashem wanted you to throw him out, but you didn't. So worst came to worst, you have a close relationship with your child. So be careful. If you're imagining what God tells you, better to err on the side of not destroying this relationship. Number three, I told him. I have the biggest question. Why did Hashem want Yishmael out? Because of Yitzchak. Because of Yitzchak. Yitzchak also had a child, Esav. It says that Esav's wives brought a lot of aggravation to Yitzchak and Rivka. Yitzchak was not naive. Rivka must have told him about Yitzchak. Ultimately, she realized Rivka took the blessings for Yaakov. What should have been the first thing that Yitzchak did? Throw out Esav from the house? That's what God told your mother to do and your father to do because of you. 
So you live 4,000 years later, you're throwing your kid out of the house. Yitzchak lived in that generation. He didn't throw his kid out of the house. In fact, Rivka saw that Esav wants to kill Yaakov, right? What should have she told her husband? Throw Esav out of the house. You don't believe me? Ask God. Your father also had this problem. What does Rivka do instead? Who does she throw out of the house? She sends Yaakov away. Come on. Yaakov, 22 years is away from Yitzchak. The good boy. Send away Esav. Tell Yitzchak to tell Esav, you know what? Do me a favor. Go hunting in Hawaii. Go hunting in Montana. They send Yaakov away for a shidduch. Wow. That's pretty bad. Yitzchak saw what God said. He didn't do it with his own child. Apparently he understood. When Hashem tells you to do it, do it. When not, you don't do it. And number four, I said, even the story with Yishmael was before Matan Torah. Yishmael wasn't a Jew. Yitzchak is the heir. Yishmael wasn't a Jew. After Matan Torah, you're throwing away a soul? Every single Jew, Hashem says, is part of Mamleches Koyanim Begaikadosh's soul, or her soul is a chelik elekami mal mamish. That's about your son too, your daughter too. It's painful. But the solution to the pain is not to amputate your heart. The solution to the pain is not to destroy and mutilate a part of you. That's not because that pain is much worse. The solution to the pain first and foremost is you need ways to deal with the pain. But you need connection. Now, I add number five. This I didn't say on the phone because it was before I prepared the class. This was last week. I had number five. Hashem told Avram Avinu to expel Yishmael. And what did Avram do? He went to visit him. Whoa, whoa, I don't understand. God tells you to throw your son out. Avram understood. The moment expulsion becomes the MO. The moment I become a chassid of expulsion, I lost the plot. It became about my own insecurities, my own trauma, my own pain. Avram Avinu understood there was a danger for Yitzchak. And Hashem said, Yishmael should not live here. Let him and his mother relocate. But he's still my son. And he went to visit him and he mixed into his marriage. And he got him to get divorced and he remarried another one. And the second marriage he blessed because he saw that this is going to be a fine home of hospitality and kindness. And that's when Yishmael realized my father still loves me. Really? It was important for Yishmael to know that Avram still loves him. And the Medrash says it. And that's why he did tshuva. And who understood this? Yitzchak. It never became an issue where me and Yishmael are enemies for eternity. And that's the beginning of history, the middle of history, the end of history. Avram and Yitzhak understood ultimately the vision of Yiddishkeit is never only about segregation and isolation as a shite because the whole world essentially is evil. The vision of Yiddishkeit is, yes, you must be anchored. Protected very, very strongly. But the ultimate vision of Geula is... That the whole world is transformed. So Yitzchak feels that there is a future here. Now he's an adult. He's older. He goes to Hagar. He goes to Yishmael. He speaks to Hagar. 
Yes, he understands there is a time when Sarah needs this house empty from anybody else. But Yitzchak understands that there's something broken here. There's something not reconciled. There's something that has to be reconciled. Avram Avinu had beautiful, amazing intentions that have to ultimately be implemented even if the time was not ripe. So Yitzchak goes out. He ultimately brings Hagar back. Imagine. And when he gets married and starts his life, he wants Avram should be able to be together with Hagar like they once were, who remained Keturah. And in the process, Yishmael is transformed. Yishmael becomes a Baal And all the three clues now come together. Of course Yitzchak was by the boil of Lachai Rai. And of course Yishmael was at the funeral. And of course Avram Avinu remarried that woman named Keturah. I find this... But she passed away already. You mean in her honor? You're saying in her honor. You're saying Avram Avinu changed the name because of Sarah's, to respect Sarah's emotions. So maybe he changed the name. Huh? That, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I think in conclusion that this whole story is of immense consequence for our time. And that's what Rabbi Sachs said. Because I don't need to tell this audience here about the Tsaras and the challenges that Jews had from the Muslim religion. And nobody here has to understand, doesn't, doesn't need elaboration about the dangers that Israel lives with, as somebody once said, Israel is an amazing, beautiful country. It's just in a very bad neighborhood. <laughs> Yishmal himself did tshuva, but Eretz Yisrael belongs to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. <laughs> What's the vision of Gula? The vision of Gula? It's fine, don't worry. The six children, it says Avram Avinu sent them to the east. Some say, in fact, that these are the founding fathers of the far eastern spiritual disciplines. Because you know probably that in Buddhism there's the famous mantra Brahman, right? Which some associate with Avram. And the Zohar says that Avram Avinu gave them gifts. Rashi says, Shem shal tumma He gave them a spiritual energy. So some say that the Far Eastern disciplines and philosophies come from the children of Avram Avinu. In fact, you'll see that many ideas in those Far Eastern disciplines are very spiritual extremely spiritual, and they focus on the oneness of the universe. Nirvana, one and all, all in one, cessation of ego, melting away in oneness, this profound spiritual transcendence. Many Jews who I know made their way to Judaism through, through the East because they got in touch with spirituality. Sometimes gurus said, you know, what are you coming to us? Go to, Jew, go, go, go to the Jews. The Chiddush of Yiddishkeit is post-Matan you see, that their Yiddish guide is pre-Matan Torah where there was no integration between the spiritual and the physical. Transcendence becomes the ultimate. The peak of the mountain, meditation, spirituality. The revolution of Matan Torah was heaven and earth becoming one. So Yishmael doing Tshuva doesn't mean Eretz Yisrael is now split up. Yishmael doing Tshuva means every person, every child, every human being, every nation, every culture has its place in God's infinite universe being their own unique channel and offering their unique contribution to enhancing society for our times and for the future. So when you have Jews and Muslims who both trace their descent from Avram Avinu, Jews through Yitzchak, Muslims through Yishmael, such a story has tremendous significance. And I should also say that Fatima, 
or Patima, Fatima, is also a very significant name. The daughter of Muhammad. <laughs> Fatima is the daughter of Muhammad. And in Pirkei de Rebeleze it says, this was Yishmael's second wife. So this means that beneath the narrative of Chayesara, the sages read the clues and they pieced together a very moving story of reconciliation between Avraham, Yitzchak, Hagar, and Yishmael. There was conflict, there was separation, there was tragic conflict and tragic separation, but that was the beginning. It was not the end. In other words, what does that mean today? That means today, Jews need to protect themselves. Jews need to be strong. I once heard from Professor Dershowitz. He said, Hashem Hashem God shall give confidence to his people and bless them with peace. He said, The path to peace runs through oiz, through strength and confidence. The path to peace is not a path where you stretch your head out for the shchita and you hope that your enemy will be appeased, or as Churchill said, appeasement is feeding the crocodile in the hope that he will eat you last. Hashem oiz Hashem You need confidence because some people just want to kill you and your children. But the ultimate vision of Judaism, the ultimate vision of the Jewish people is to be able to reach out to a world and say, we were designed to live with dignity, with mutual friendship, with mutual dignity, with peace. Avram Avinu loved both of his sons. And that's what Yishmael came to realize. Avram Avinu was laid to rest by both of his sons. That is a significant moment in Chumash, so easy to skip over. So there is hope for the future in the story of the past. And I think at least one taste of that happened last year. And I think because of political reasons, it was not given the coverage and the consideration it would have been given had Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu not been involved. I think if Donald Trump and Netanyahu were not involved, it would have gotten much, much more coverage. But we should not eclipse such an incredible story. And that is what happened one year ago, September 2020, when there was a peace agreement that they titled the Abraham Accords. And I happen to love that name. And it was basically led by Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz when Israel signed a unilateral and absolute peace agreement with the Kingdom of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, followed by some others. And, you know, even though there's always the pessimist and the cynic who, who disregards these things, but I, for one, think it was an incredible moment in history for which Jews and the world ought to say a shachiyano, because in the ultimate vision of reality, there is a lot of hope for the future in the story of the past. Yes. Yeah, that's the Ben Ishchai's interpretation. I would also add, perhaps, that Yishmol being present at the Akedah helped him understand why Yitzchak has to go first at the funeral. Yishmol realized at that moment what, who Yitzchak was and what Yitzchak was capable of. Universal peace doesn't come at the expense of Jewish distinctiveness. You understand? Universal brotherhood doesn't come at the expense of Jewish distinctiveness. You don't understand what I'm saying? 
Throughout Jewish history, there was always this conflict, are we a tribal people or are we a universal people, right? So you'll say like this, from Jews always spoke about more, we're parochial, you know, we build our own communities, we protect our children from outside influences to the best of our ability, quote-unquote. You know, we have kosher homes, we don't, we're careful with all the things we're careful from, Yaya Nesach and Bishal Akum and intermarriage, because for Jews to be Jews... They have to be able to be Jews. <laughs> so it's a question of who you marry and what type of home you have and who cooks the food and what type of wine you drink and where you party. And this is why the Jewish people are still here living a Jewish life in the millions, Cain Yerbo, right? And then there were other groups called the more secular groups that spoke more about universalism, you know. We're a light unto the nations. You know, when was the last time you heard a Rosh Hashiva or a Musser Mashgiach get up in Yeshiva and give a Shmuaz? We are a light unto the nations to change the world. It's not, it's not the common, you know, you have to work on your middus, you have to steig, you have to learn, you have to daven. But the truth is that in the ultimate destiny of Jewish history, to pit these two against each other is really not our destiny. It's the other way around. The more Jews are anchored in their Judaism, the more powerful and deeper an impact and influence they can have on the world. Because the more true you are to yourself, the more your voice is authentic and resonates and people want to hear it. The less I believe in myself, the less confidence I have. I'm just trying to say the right thing to appease everybody. Ultimately, I have no voice. So this is the moment of reconciliation where Jews anchored in their own faith and heritage and Torah and Amunah and Messiah and anchored in their own essence with confidence and unwavering clarity with a lack of ambiguity and ambivalence and dissonance, when Jews are rooted in that space, but not, from a pl- not in a place of arrogance and pride and superficial, uh, holier-than-thou, superior complexes, but in a place of real dvekus in the Almighty, humility, so the deeper the impact you can have literally worldwide. Wishing you all an amazing, inspiring, and wonderful week. Thank you very much. Thank you, and Be'ezer Hashem, we'll see you next week, Tuesday, 12.45. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.